Morning, everybody. Did you notice how nicely Josh was dressed this morning? Wow. Take him out at Christmas time. And Merry Christmas, everybody. Christ the Savior is born. We have much to give thanks for. I love to pray together. Um, actually, we're going to take a day to pray together as we begin the new year. Uh, two weeks from Saturday, January 10th, we'll, it will be a day of prayer. We'll be telling you more about that. But there's something glorious, something wonderful about praying together as God's people. And God is expectant of that, and he is eager to answer our prayers. So I just I treasure that. I hope you do as well. Look with me, if you would, at Mark chapter 3. This morning we're continuing our study of Mark, and we're talking about a subject that is oh so important every, every day, but has a particular meaning during this Christmas season. And that's this question that we must each consider this morning. Who is Jesus? If you ask someone down in the marketplace, who is Jesus, especially at Christmas time, You'll get an answer like, well, he's the baby born in a manger. He's so cute. It's solar heated. Everything's clean. Or, or, Or he was a wonderful teacher. He's a good man. But so often the answer that may be given, and actually the answer that that may reflect our attitude of heart, is I believe Jesus was a great moral teacher, but I don't know about his claim to be God. If we act in such a way that his commands are not ours, we, we, we call that into question, don't we? He's a great moral teacher, but I'm not sure about his claim to be God. He, he, he said he forgave sin. He's the Lord of the Sabbath of the house of David. But is he God? C.S. Lewis famously, the British theologian, famously responded to this with these words. That is one thing, speaking of, I believe he was a great moral teacher, but not sure about God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man that says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. This morning we are going to be reading a passage where that question is posed. We'll see two groups of people who should have known who he was 
And yet, religious leaders believing that he's a liar, that he's empowered by Satan. And his family believing he's a lunatic out of his mind. And Jesus reveals himself as Lord of all. The question that we must consider, the question that we must answer through our words and through our life is, what do we believe? Look with me at Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 20. Then he, speaking of Jesus, went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He's possessed by Beelzebel, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. He called to them. And he said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. But no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he is an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my brother and my brothers? And looking about those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. This section of scripture is full of conflict. The setting is Capernaum. Jesus has returned home to the home of Peter and Andrew. And the crowds... Heard he's in town and they come, they flock to him. They're desperate for his help. These people are looking for help. They're looking for miracles. They're looking for deliverance. If you have a son who is sick, the difference between Jesus praying for him and not is probably life and death. If that's your son, you're eager, you're desperate. You're not going to take no for an answer. And we have here thousands of people coming, some of them, a hundred miles from Jerusalem to, to, to be with Jesus, to press in upon him. 
And there is a certain selfishness about this crowd because they're, they're not looking to take care of Jesus or to give him a, a little privacy. They're looking to get their needs met. So much so that they're pressing upon him and he has neither the space nor the time even to eat a meal. It's pandemonium. It's desperateness. And his family hears about this. Now, imagine you're Mary or the brothers, stepbrothers technically. Jesus' father seems to have died at this point. And his mother and his brothers are trying to process how this man who grew up in their home I mean, granted, he was the good kid, right? He was the, he was the one that never got in trouble. But what's this about him calling disciples and running around and healing people and delivering people and talking about himself being the Lord of the Sabbath? What, what's going on? It seems like he's a little out of his mind. And and we need to have some understanding of their position because apart from the understanding that we have from the scriptures that this man is indeed the savior of the world, that he's the one that was prophesied to come, apart from understanding who he was, it seems a little abnormal for the kid that grew up with you to be attracting tens of thousands of people to be casting out demons. What's going on? He seems to be out of his mind. So they determine to have an intervention. They determine to go and to seize him, literally to take him away by force. So they find out he's in Capernaum, and they head to Capernaum to take him, to bring him back home, to to care for him, to help him to come back to reality. And while they're on their way, some religious leaders show up. Now, these aren't ordinary religious leaders from the local synagogue. These are scribes. These are the big guns from Jerusalem, the religious Gestapo. They're in town to make an announcement. The time for asking questions is over. They've heard all they need to hear. They're not drawing out the disciples. They're not asking Jesus to explain more about his call. They've made their decision. They've arrived with an assessment. And their assessment is, verse 22, that he's possessed by the devil. That he's actually doing the works of Satan by Satan's power. That he's practicing magic, if you will, that he has an unclean spirit. They call him Belzebul, the master of the house, referring to Satan. And they have the final word. These are not men who, who say things lightly. These are not men who can be taken lightly. Their judgment matters. They speak for the Jewish community. So on behalf of the Jewish community, they weigh in that this man is demonic. Now notice that they don't question the authenticity of his miracles. They they acknowledge he's genuinely healing people. It would be impossible to 
deny that. He's genuinely delivering people. It would be impossible to deny that. So, so they're left with a choice. Either he is from God or he is from Satan, one or the other. There, there is no third option. And their hearts are hardened. Their worldview makes no room for this man to be the savior of the world. So Jesus responds. He calls them and he speaks to them in parables. So parables are stories that are placed alongside a teaching to help us to understand a meaning. We're going to be uh, having, saying many parables in the Gospel of Mark, this being the first. Jesus says to them in verse 23, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. In other words, Jesus is saying, your logic is absurd. Anyone just looking at this with an open mind would understand that I couldn't be doing the work of the devil because that would be Satan opposing himself. And if Satan is opposing himself, the house cannot stand. See, Satan is attempting to build a kingdom. Satan is extending his kingdom by sowing chaos and enslaving people, not by setting them free. So if what they're saying is true, then Satan is actually destroying himself. And then Jesus uses another analogy. He says in verse 25, if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. Whether it's a marriage, a family, a business, Sports, church, division in the ranks will cause the institution to fail, destroying itself. So Satan, in that case, verse 26, has risen up against himself and is divided, so he can't stand. He's coming to an end, but, but guys, look around. Look around. Satan isn't coming to an end. He isn't falling. He isn't dividing. He's not throwing in his cards He's not saying, well, Jesus, you defeated me in the wilderness. You're casting out demons. I, I give up. Far from it. If we look around, brothers and sisters, and have eyes to see, so much of what happens in the world around us is Satan's proactive activity to destroy people. Whether it's gossip and slander, whether it's hatred between racial groups, whether it's people that, that, that are possessed and, and unable to function, whether it's the Taliban killing hundreds of teenagers, what's behind that is the very work of Satan who's alive and well. So Jesus says in verse 27, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Now, think about what he's saying. He, he, he's saying if, if you're going to go into a house and rob it, and there's a man there who's able to resist, he's going to resist you. You're not going to be able to get in. So Jesus is saying if you want to rob a man's house, first you have to overpower him. Then you can rob him. And the, the parable is representative of the very work of Christ. It's so important we see this. This is a picture of Jesus' work. Satan is the strong man. His house is this broken world, the realm of sin, sickness, demon possession, and death. 
his possessions are people enslaved by these things. And to plunder his house, to enter his realm and carry off his possessions, requires one stronger than him. And Jesus is that one. By overcoming Satan in the wilderness, by casting out demons, and eventually by dying on the cross for the sin of the world, Jesus breaks the guilt and the power of sin is the primary weapons of the strong one. Jesus' ministry was ongoing proof that he was stronger than Satan, that Satan could not stop him. He entered Satan's house, this earth, bound him, and delivered those enslaved by him, which, which refuted the accusations of, of these Jewish leaders and left them speechless. It, it's ridiculous for them to suggest that Jesus was fighting for Satan while he was releasing Satan's captives. It's self-evident and indisputable that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. Denying this truth only revealed the intentional spiritual blindness of the scribes. And so it is our opportunity as we gather to worship to observe this, to consider the work that Jesus accomplished to consider that he came into this world, kept this, the law perfectly, honored his father, and in obedience to his father, died upon the cross for our sin. Whether it's Christmas time, Easter, or any time during the year, we have so much to marvel at. It is our privilege to marvel at the finished work of Christ. And yet... And yet so often through our lives, brothers and sisters, we join these religious leaders in calling Jesus a liar. And this should sober us. Whenever we respond to orient our lives around him and yet orient our lives around our own desires, when we, whenever we sin and ask forgiveness and then continue to walk in guilt and condemnation. We're calling him a liar. We're saying his forgiveness is not real. Whenever we work to atone for our sin, we're saying, Jesus, I really don't think your sacrifice was sufficient. I had a wonderful experience this past week. Liz and mom and I last Monday went to Williamsburg just to look at all the Christmas decorations. And we ate dinner in one of the taverns. And that, and as we were eating, as we were finishing our meal, the waiter came to the couple next to us and said to them, it's been my privilege to, to wait on you tonight. I, I just want you to know that your meal is paid for. I, I love those moments. And uh, they said, What? What do you mean our meal's paid for? That can't be. No, sir, your your meal is paid for. Your children wanted to to say thanks on your anniversary. So they've paid for your meal. Okay, well, well what about the tip we owe for no no, they've paid for the tip. Well what do we owe? Nothing. It's a gift. 
can tell it just took him a while to absorb that. That's kind of breathtaking. It's wonderful. But what if they had said, we can't accept that gift. Well, so there's no bill to pay. Well, then we're going to go back and wash dishes. We're, we're going to find a way to pay. We can't accept a free meal. That we've got to pay. For, we've, got to, we've got to do something. We, we feel guilty if we don't do something. Sir, so there's nothing you can do. It's a gift. No, we insist. That's absurd, isn't it? But do you realize every time we try to pay for our own sin, that's exactly what we're doing? If you're a Christian, the bill is paid. Your sins are forgiven. Oh, no, 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 I can't accept that, Lord. I'm, I'm going to have to do some extra devotion time this week. I, I'm going to have to do a good deed for somebody. I've got to put some more money in there. I've got to do something. I can't, I can't just, I'm going to feel guilty for a while, and then, then I'll accept your forgiveness. You see how we do that? And when we do that, we're joining the scribes in saying, Jesus, you're a liar. We really don't believe what you have to say. See, see, the way we understand Jesus has everything to do with the way we live. And this is so serious that Jesus uses words at the beginning of verse 28 intended to, to grab everybody's attention. He says, truly I say to you. Now when he says that, he's, this is a solemn, serious Affirmation filled with authority. This is a word from God himself, delivered by the only one in the universe who is a reliable witness to say it. It's like in the Old Testament reading, thus saith the Lord. The mood could not be more serious because what Jesus is about to communicate has eternal gravity. Look what he says. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of men and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. An amazing promise followed by a chilling warning. The blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is an eternal sin. Over the years, I've met many Christians who are convinced that they have committed the unforgivable sin. So it's important to just drop into this for a moment and discover what exactly it is. First of all, what it's not. It's not cursing the Holy Spirit or taking the Lord's name in vain, as serious as that is. It's not adultery or sexual perversion. It's not murder or multiple murders or even genocide. The context of this gives us a clue as to what Jesus is talking about. These scribes are carefully trained legal specialists. Their task was to interpret the biblical law to the people. They were responsible to be aware of God's redemptive action. These are the guys who most of all should have been looking for this prophesied Savior who had come to deliver his people. They should have gotten up every day praying and anticipating that he would come. But instead, instead they responded 
in verse 22 by, by saying he's possessed by the devil and by the prince of demons. He casts out demons. Verse 30, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. And that word saying is, is not just a, a single word, but it's, it's a continual action. They were continually saying he's possessed by Satan. He's doing the works of Satan. He's got an unclean spirit. They were looking at the supremely good one and calling him supremely evil. They were seeing this work that could only be attributed to God or Satan because it was supernatural. And they were determining, they were declaring with the full force of their office that this man is wicked. This man is supremely evil. Jesus came casting out demons. That should have been a sign to them of the intrusion of the kingdom of God. Luke's parallel account Jesus says, if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. It should have been a sign to them. This is God's work. This, is, this work can only be attributed to God. This is not Satan because, as he just said, he would be destroying himself. By assigning this action to a demonic origin... These scribes betray a hardened heart. It reflects an attitude, not just an isolated utterance, an attitude of defiant hostility, calling evil good and refusing to celebrate God's good works through Christ. So let me just define this sin for you. The unpardonable sin is knowingly, willingly, and ongoingly attributing the works of God done by and through Jesus to Satan. It is a persistent attitude of willful unbelief resulting in a hardened heart. It is a willful rejection of God's grace in Jesus rooted in unbelief. And so repentance and forgiveness isn't possible because repentance and forgiveness is never sought. I've never met a single professing Christian who actually committed the unpardonable sin. The very fact that one is concerned they are committing that sin is confirmation that they have not. Charles Spurgeon says it this way, There is a sin which is unto death, But those who commit it never ask for mercy or deserve it. They are dead even while they live. That's chilling. They are dead even while they live. Their conscience is seared as with a hot iron. And they rush to hell willingly. One thing that is sure, that no man who feels his need of Christ and sincerely desires to be saved can have committed that sin at all. Brothers and sisters, I hope if that is a torment to you, that is helpful. There is forgiveness in Christ. But these scribes were on the brink of committing that sin, calling Christ's work the work of Satan, persisting in their blasphemy. And so we see the scribes calling Jesus a liar 
And now Jesus' family shows up. They've been en route while Jesus is talking to the scribes. They've made the 30-mile trek from Nazareth. And his mother and brothers come, and, and they're standing outside. They, even his mother and brothers, can't get through the crowd. People are packed in so tightly, and nobody's given ground because they want to get to Jesus. So they're outside, and they send word that his mother and brothers are seeking him. And Jesus, Jesus does something very unexpected. One would have expected in this culture particularly that Jesus would honor his mother and his brothers by immediately going to them. Even as he's ministering to these desperate crowds, he would go to them. But Jesus knew what was in their hearts. must be good to kind of know with absolute certainty what somebody's thinking and doing. And Jesus knows that the best thing he can do for them is not go there. And so he uses this teaching to make this opportunity to make a teachable moment to communicate a value about the kingdom that is, is absolutely essential. Now, again, in Hebrew culture, because the family was someone's identity, what he's about to say really rocked their boat. Because what he's about to do is redefine the family. He says in verse 33, Who are my mother and my brothers? could just feel feel this moment feel the tension feel the, the the heart of the savior as he communicates something these people have never considered he looks around and he says here here are my mother and my brothers pointing at his disciples And then turning to the crowd. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus has redefined that part of society that is most essential. In the Jewish society, the family is the highest value. And without dishonoring the family, for Jesus, even on the cross, is looking out for his mother. Without dishonoring the family, Jesus is establishing a whole new order. He's saying, if you're going to follow me, this is the singular quality that will set you apart. Please hear this. There's a singular quality. One thing. If you're going to follow me, one thing's going to set you apart. Everybody's going to be able to tell if you're a disciple. Here's how. Whoever does the will of God. Obedience sets you apart. Now that is absolutely tied to the question that we began with this morning. Who is Jesus? If we believe that Jesus is a good teacher... We'll consider his ideas, but we won't necessarily obey him. We believe he's a liar or a lunatic. Uh, We're just going to observe and talk about who he is. We'll enjoy the baby in the manger. 
but we won't be calling him Lord. But if we believe that that baby in a manger is God incarnate, if we believe this one who is prophesied that would come, remember Isaiah 9, to us a child is born, to us a son is given. But he doesn't end there. The government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom. If we believe that's the baby in the manger, then we'll worship him as as the Magi did, as the shepherds did, who seemed to have some understanding that this this child, this child was divine. And if we believe that, then here's how we'll show that. We'll obey him. So what you believe about Jesus will determine whether you fall into this category, whoever does the will of God. See, See, there is a promise attached to this. It's an amazing promise of community, of family, but, but it hinges on doing the will of God. We don't earn our salvation. We reflect our salvation. We don't do the will of God to be born again. We do the will of God because we're born again. So he's given us a new heart, a new life, and because of that, we do his will. Because of that, we're kingdom people. Because of that, we're disciples. We follow him, not perfectly for sure, but wholeheartedly. We don't say, well, Lord, you you say in your word that I should do this and not do that. I'm not really sure. We say, no, you're my king. And if you call me to do this, then I will follow. I will do your will. And brothers and sisters, look at this promise. If you do the will of God, look at the reward. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. What could be a more amazing thing to hear the Lord say about you? See, Jason, that's my brother. my sister. It's my mother. This is my family. If you understand that, it changes everything. Being a member of a family is how we think about ourselves. It's how we identify ourselves. Not primarily our natural family. Natural family is important. It's a gift, but it's this family that defines my life. That's why membership really matters, see? Because this is, this is who God's called me to be with, to live out my life with. And if you're a single person and you're going to wake up alone on Christmas morning, you've got to remember this. You're not alone. If your husband or wife is no longer beside you, and you feel, or you're tempted to feel, alone? You're not alone. Because Jesus says you're his brother, you're his sister. He's given you a family. You're a part of a family. A family that not only 
less in this life, but guess what? We're going to be together forever. (laughs) For all eternity. That's why membership is the highest privilege known to man. Because God's called us to be a part of a family and walk together. But let, let me come back to the question. This all hinges on this question, who is Jesus? Is he a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord? And, and not just who do we say he is, but who do we act like he is? Who do we live like he is? Who is he? Well, Mark answers the question. In verse 27, he tells us he's not a liar. Look, he says, No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Jesus did this, and he did it for you. So he's not a liar. He's the Lord of the demonic. He's the one that is divine because only God is stronger than Satan. And he came to intentionally bind Satan and plunder his house to rescue you. So he's not a liar. He accomplished this with you in mind as he hung upon the cross. He paid the price for your sin. You were once a captive to Satan, but Jesus came and plundered Satan's house and delivered you from the dominion of darkness and transferred you into the kingdom of his beloved son. We could not liberate ourselves. He liberated us through his death on the cross. He's not a liar. He did what he said he would do. He accomplished your deliverance and mine. And he's not a lunatic. Verse 28 makes an amazing promise. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man. All sins will be forgiven. That, just take it alo- that alone and consider those words. What an audacious promise. All sins will be forgiven, the children of man. Don't miss that. All of the sins that you've committed, if you're a believer, if you're a follower of Christ have been forgiven. All the sins you will commit this afternoon and even before you leave here today have been forgiven. Every sin that you commit until you see him face to face and have a new life, a new body, will be, have been forgiven. It's glorious, brothers and sisters. I I love the song we sing. My sin is cast into the sea of God's forgotten memory. No more to haunt accusingly, for Christ has lived and died for me. He's not a lunatic. He keeps his word. He's sane. He's he's, he's faithful. J.C. Ryle writes of these words. He says, drink deeply from these words. This truth is the crown and glory of the gospel. Think about that. The very first thing it proposes to man is free pardon, full forgiveness, complete remission, without money and without price. Let us cleave 
firmly to this doctrine if we have received it already. He adds, we sometimes may feel faint and unworthy and cast down. But if we have really come to Jesus by faith, hear this, our sins are fully forgiven. They are cast behind God's back, blotted out of the book of his remembrance, sunk into the depths of the sea. Let us believe and not be afraid. Brothers and sisters, don't call him a liar. Don't act as if you're the exception or that your sin is worse than others. Realize that Jesus' death is sufficient to cleanse all of your sin. And if you haven't turned to Jesus and trust and faith and turned from your sin, please do that today. Because this Christmas promise is for those who have accomplished that, those who have trusted in him. And he longs to forgive your sin. So here's the question we have to ask this Christmas. Here's the Christmas the answer we have to answer this Christmas. Is Jesus a liar? A lunatic? Or the Lord of all? We have to answer that. We have to answer that through our words. We have to answer that through our actions. To not answer that is to answer. C.S. Lewis, in the quote we began with, ends with this. He says, A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. Now, Mr. Lewis concludes, it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. Do you accept the fact that he was and is God? Will you come to him as Lord? Will you obey his word, beginning with turning from sin and trusting in the Savior? Will you accept his offer of divine life? What through... Though the vile accuser roar of sins that I have done, I know them well and thousands more. My God, he knoweth not. Will you accept his?
his sacrifice as your own. The only appropriate response if we accept him as Lord is humble repentance, sincere gratefulness, and glad obedience. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your holy word that defines for us the most important question of our lives. Who is Jesus? Lord, I pray that you help us to get that answer right. To both believe and act as if you were not a liar or a lunatic, but the very Lord of the universe. That you are the Son of God who came to save the sins of the world. That because of your sacrifice, we need not endure eternal punishment. Father, as one man said, what we think of you, what comes to our mind when we think of you, is the most important thing about us. Let our minds immediately embrace this wonderful truth that you are the Lord of all and to live as if that is true. For any that don't know you this morning, I pray that you would be pleased to open those hearts to the truth of your gospel. And for all the rest of us, would you help us to be glad ambassadors of this truth? And when we speak to others about Christmas, it will not be confined to the, fr- the frivolous trappings of the season. But it will be about the one that the season celebrates. The one who came to earth, laying aside his rights to die for our death and to live for us that we can live forever as sons, daughters, brothers, and sisters of our Savior. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. One of the ways we, we demonstrate what we think of him is, is coming to worship, to sing, to lift our hearts We're going to do that now. Another way is to give of our finances. To bring our offerings as the Magi did. To give generously to the one who's died for us. You'll have an opportunity to do that as we receive the offering during this song. So would you please stand with me? And let's lift our voices to him.